Amen. Our lives would be so much greater if we just built upon the simplicity of Christ. Amen. And what an amazing truth it is we get to sing this morning in worshiping him. Uh, before we get into our message this morning, I did want to share, and I kind of forgot to mention this, um, we had an amazing time yesterday at our uh, kind of like young families, young couples. When I say young, it's really kind of under 50, so there was various ages there, which was great, but it was so great to spend a day at the park. Uh, we just met up at North Branch Park around 11, had some food, some fellowship, um, just played some football, just hanged out with the kids. It just was a great, great day, and uh, so thankful for those that were able to be there. Um, it just was honestly just a great time of, of fellowship and getting to know some other couples and seeing the kids interact and play on the playground was just great. And so uh, it was just a great time. And so we are going to be trying to do something else here in the near future again uh, with that group. And so keep that in the back of your mind. If you weren't able to be with, with us, we know that 4th of July weekend is a busy weekend for a lot of people. And so I just want to kind of throw that out there, just kind of be looking at the bulletin in the weeks and months ahead for those opportunities. And so uh, this morning, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, whether on your device or in paper form, you can go to the book of Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. In the Old Testament, uh, Nehemiah is found. And so if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats there, there are some Bibles that we're providing to you. You can actually just turn to page 375. So if you're using one of the Bibles provided, page 375. Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to get to our text in just a little bit. I want to set the stage just briefly before we get into the text. And so uh, the first thing I want to share is kind of how we got to bringing this message to you, how I kind of felt led of the Lord to bring this message. And so many of you know, last week we spoke about the patience of God, the endurance of God, the, the reality that God is so faithful to endure with humanity is a great blessing, a great uh, honor, really, honestly, that we can praise him for, thank him for enduring with us and by abiding with us and being patient with us in our unbelief, right? We talked about that last week and maybe even in when we look on lesser things, we look to something else rather than him to fill us. And we are reminded every time he draws us back into his loving arms that he was patient with us and he was enduring with us in that season. And the title of the message last week was How Long or How Longs with God. And we started by talking about the fact that we have a hard time sometimes being patient with God when he doesn't answer our prayers like we want him to, when we want him to, and when he doesn't move in our situation like we think he should. And so we go to God like the psalmist cried out. And if you missed the message last week, you can go online, northgoodland.org. You can go on our app, which is Northgoodland BC in your app store. You can find all the messages there. But we talked about the reality that we go to God and we complain sometimes to God and we get angry with God. God, how long do I have to wait for you to do this or that? How long... Do I have to wait on you to act? And we were reminded that although we do have our how longs with God, God has many more how longs with us. That if we're honest, God could say to us any given day, at any given time, well, how long do I have to endure your lack of faith? How long do I have to endure your uh, desire to look to lesser things, to look to something else to fill you and to satisfy you? How long do I have to wait on you? And we went through that whole thing last week. And then just studying through that this, this couple weeks ago for that message, um, I was reminded in my personal readings of that reality. And so this morning is kind of a follow-up to last week in a way. And, and again, it's by God's gracious initiative because in my own personal reading, just going through the word in the mornings, I've been in Nehemiah and rereading some of these amazing moments in the life of Nehemiah and the people of God as they go back to the land. And I came across here a few days back, the chapter 9, and I was just overwhelmed by the compassion, by the grace, by the mercy of God as I was reading through that. And so as I was reading through chapter 9, here a few days back and just praying over what the Lord would have me to share this week. I couldn't get away from this chapter. It just was on my heart and on my mind. And so I want to follow up to the patience of God last week. And this morning, I just want to be in awe of him. I just want to be in awe of our amazing God. I want to be in awe of his compassion. I want to be in awe of his grace. And so I think sometimes as Christians, if you're here and you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you grew up in church or maybe you've been in church a long time, so you would say, man, I've been in church so long, I don't remember the first time I was in church because I was so little. Like, I've just been in church my whole life. I, I feel as though I've always been around Christians. I've always known the gospel. I came to faith at a very young age. 
if, if that's you, what a blessing of heritage of faith. What a blessing that you were raised in a Christian home with Christian parents, or maybe it was Christian grandparents that had a huge influence over you. What a blessing that you were able to be a part of that. That is never a negative. So many Christians, well, I don't have a testimony. I grew up in church. That's an amazing testimony, if you ask me, that you were surrounded by Christ-like love and an example of Christ-likeness. But if you grew up in church, one of the downsides to that, that if we're not careful, we can fall into this trap, is things like the grace of God become kind of complacent to us. We, yeah, I know the grace of God. It saved me. The grace of God is for me. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. I knew that when I was eight. Let's move on to something deeper. But I think there's a, a very real need in the life of believers to pause and reflect over the compassion and grace and mercy of God in our daily lives. Now, in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, we find an amazing time where the people of God just reflected over the goodness of God. And I want to unpack that this morning. My prayer is that understanding what we read in Nehemiah 9 will help us to be led in a way to learn from the history of God's people, namely the Israelites. To learn of the grace of God that God gave them and how he is ever gracious to us. Also my prayer, second part of my prayer that going into this morning was that it will lead us to display grace and patience to those around us. We talked about the patience of God last week and talked about the amazing patience of God to endure with us. And I kind of ended by talking about that we can learn from that to be patient with others. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody here, you can raise your hand, I, I'm guessing you won't be alone. If you end up being the only one in the audience raising your hand, I promise you my hand will go up, okay? Anyone here got frustrated and showed a lack of patience towards someone this week, including your spouse or your children? Okay, amen. Anybody here let someone down this last week, maybe even unintentionally, and you realize, man, I feel horrible that I let them down this week. Anybody? Yeah. See, we've all been there. We've all let someone down, and we've all gotten frustrated at someone when they didn't come through. We had to show them patience, and we failed in that area. So here's my prayer for this morning, that when we realize the love and grace and compassion and mercy of God, it will not lead us to being a doormat where we just let people walk all over us. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is when somebody blows it, somebody fails, somebody doesn't come through, maybe before we jump all over them, either verbally or in our heads, because some of you are good at this, you are all over someone and they don't even have a clue. Like you've already said all kinds of things about them in your head. Like you've gone up one side and down the other, as my mom used to say, and you've given it to them, but you've, bur- oh, it's fine. But in your head, like, I could strangle you right now if I really, like, if I could get away with it, I probably would, okay? We've all experienced that. So I'm not saying that we just let people walk all over us. No, no, no. It's okay to say, hey, this was not okay, and this let me down, and, you know, hey, maybe we need to do better here. But there is a point where we say, but maybe before I react, I think about the actions of God towards me in his grace when I've blown it with him, when I've failed. When I didn't come through, when I told God, God, I, I'm telling you, I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to say it again. And then a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months or maybe a year go by and you're going back to God going, God, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know what's amazing is his, his grace is there to pick you up, to brush you off and to restore you. And so when we know that, and we love that about our God, amen, we love the grace of God. We love that God gives us grace. He doesn't condone sin or compromise on sin, but he does give us grace for sin. And we love that about our God. But the number one thing we struggle with giving to other people is the grace that we love receiving from God. We love giving judgment. We love giving condemnation. We love pointing out their faults and their failures because ultimately we know we're better than them. That's really what we're saying. So my prayer this morning is that we will be drawn to an awareness of the just mightiness of God and his grace and his love and his compassion, that we would worship him and honor him and praise him. And we would never get tired of saying, God, thank you for your grace today. That would never get old to us. But the other part of it is that in application, we would go, God, because you've been gracious to me, help me to show grace to someone today. Help me to be patient with someone today, even those that live in my home who are sometimes 
the most difficult to be patient with because we know them so well and they know us so well and it's hard. But I truly believe that the best opportunity I have for discipleship is the children in my home, the wife that God gave me, to lead them and to set an example before them as imperfect as it is most days, but to rest in the grace of God. And when I blow it or when they blow it, well, except for Sandra, she's pretty perfect. I don't, I mean, I have to think back pretty long and hard before I, I remember something that she messed up. But, but the grace and the love that we show each other, that's, that's part of this example we see in Christ. And that's why it's recorded for us. Before we get into the text, I do want to give a little bit of background historically to the book of Nehemiah. So if you've never really studied or read the book of Nehemiah, it's an amazing little book. Uh, so a couple things to give you. If anyone wants a copy of the notes, because I'm going to give a lot of information that you're probably going to try to write down. You're not going to get it all. That's fine. If you want a copy of the notes, just reach out to me, Facebook me, call the office, email me, whatever. I'll try to get them to you as soon as I can. Um, and, and I'll just send you the outline directly so you'll have all this. But the book of Nehemiah is traditionally believed to have been written by Ezra, which we know there's a book previous to Nehemiah named the book of Ezra. Uh, Ezra was a priest, and we read that in Ezra 7. So Ezra wrote the book of Ezra, as well as the book of Nehemiah, as well as First and Second Chronicles, which again is another historical uh, set of books in the Old Testament. So Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles is believed to be re- written by the priest Ezra. The earliest Hebrew Bibles would have Ezra and Nehemiah combined as one book. So there was one book, one volume that was Ezra and Nehemiah because they were contemporaries. Nehemiah himself was a Jew. We read earlier he was a cupbearer to the king. Uh, This is the king of Persia. And a cupbearer was basically somebody that would test the food and test the drink so it wasn't poisoned. Not a job I'd sign up for. I don't, I, there's like a long line of people waiting for employment, and then there's the cupbearer over there. Like just one guy in line, like, I really need a job. Like, I'll take this one, right? But that was Nehemiah's job. So he had a very close relationship with the king, believed to have a good relationship, good standing. The Lord blessed him in that. So he's living in Persia, and this whole thing happens following the captivity of the Jews by the Babylonians. So if you study Old Testament history, the Jews are captured by the Babylonians. The Persians come in and conquer the Babylonians. A lot of things go on there. I'm really summarizing. But as this time goes on, the children of Israel are beginning to return back to Jerusalem, back to the land. When the Persians take control, they allow the Jews to return home to Jerusalem. This return is recorded in the book of Ezra. Now, Nehemiah himself is not a prophet or a priest. And in fact, the 400-year silence that takes place at the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament has already begun. Now, our Bible is not put in the order of chronological order. It's an order of revelation. And so uh, we can talk more about that if you have questions on that. But basically, Nehemiah chronologically actually would fall towards the end of the Old Testament. Some have it as the fourth from the end. Some have it as the last book in the Old Testament. So again, this is actually, we read it, we go way back early in our Old Testament to find it because we got Psalms and Proverbs and all these prophets and all of this. But Nehemiah chronologically actually comes towards the end of the Old Testament. So they're returning. Nehemiah is not a prophet or a priest. He's considered more of a governor, more of a leader. He, he's helping them to rebuild the walls of the city. He is concerned for the people left in Jerusalem as the walls of the city were destroyed Again, he is a governor of sorts leading the people. He asks the king, can I go back and help the people rebuild the walls? The king grants him this privilege. And as he goes back, the book of Nehemiah is recording many historical facts about the rebuilding of these walls. It's an amazing story. And most uh, sermon series out of the book of Nehemiah really kind of gear around the rebuilding of the wall. Usually it's a sermon series on uh, teamwork, working together, keeping the Lord first in our minds as we work on a project and we do things together. But we usually, unfortunately, sometimes we get to chapter 8, 9, even chapter 7, there's a lot of historical kind of descendants listed. Lots of numbers giving. This is how many of this group went in, and this is how many of this group went in. And this is why if you read First and Second Chronicles, you're going to see a lot of that similar writing. That's why we believe Ezra wrote this book as well. But then in chapter 9, we come to an amazing prayer. And I love the word of God for this. So you're reading along, and it's like, well, these people did this, and this guy did this, and the kids of this did this. And then here's this amazing moment of worship. Understanding the context 
The people have rebuilt the wall to the city. They've succeeded in their task. The temple is rebuilt and they are rejoicing during a feast known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this great celebration is happening right before chapter 9. However, the feast comes to a conclusion and the people remain. The people remain. Their feasting turned to fasting as the preaching of God's word brought conviction They are repenting for their sins and desire to worship God in truth. And so let's pick up in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Now I am going to read all the way through to verse 31. I don't usually read that much scripture all at one time, but I really want to read the whole idea of the text, and then we'll go back and kind of unpack that. So Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6. The word of God says this, thou, even thou art Lord alone. And what I want you to do is I read through this, either literally mark it or or underline something, but I want you to take a moment. And if something in the text jumps out at you, mark that because I'm going to keep reading. But if something in there is like, man, I want to come back to that. I need to camp on that for a while. As they used to say when I was growing up in the church, I need to spend some time there. Okay. So maybe you would do that as we go through this text. I may not hit everything that God encourages your heart with. And so take a moment and just underline, note, whatever. Uh, Verse six, thou, even thou art Lord alone. Thou has made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou has preservest them all. And the host of heaven worships thee. Thou art the Lord, the God who didst choose Abram and besought him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gavest him the name of Abraham. And foundest his heart faithful before thee and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, which is a great name. Girgashites. It sounds like a reality TV show. But anyway, some of you are thinking of a theme song right now to the Girgashites, so stop that. Okay. Goes on to say, to give it, I say to his seed and has performed thy words for thou art righteous. And did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heardest their cry by the Red Sea and showed signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and all his servants and on all the people of his land. For thou knowest that they dealt proudly against them. So didst thou get thee a name as it is this day. And thou didst divide the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. Praise God for his wondrous works. And their persecutors thou threwest into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Verse 12. Moreover, thou leadest them in the day by a cloud pillar and in the night by a pillar of fire to give them light in the way wherein they should go. Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai and spakest with them from heaven and gavest them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. The problem is never the word of God or the law of God. It is always the heart of the one receiving it that is unable to keep it. Verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 14. And madest known unto them thy holy Sabbath and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, thy servant, and gavest them bread from heaven for their hunger and broughtest them forth water from them or for them out of the rock for their thirst and promised them that they should go in to possess the land which thou hadst sworn to give them. Verse 16. But they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hardened not, or hearkened not to thy commandments. And refused to obey, neither were mindful of the wonders that thou did among them, but hardened their necks in their rebellion. Appointed a captain to return to their bondage, but thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsook them not. Yea, when they had made them a molten calf and said, This is thy God that brought thee up out of Egypt and had wrought great uh, provocations. Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsook them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth and gavest them water for their thirst. Yea, forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old and their feet swelled not. Moreover, thou gavest them kingdoms and nations and didst divide them into corners so they possessed the land of Sion and the land of the king of 
Heshbon and the land of Og, king of Bashan. The children also multiplied us, thou uh, as the stars of heaven, and broughtest them into the land concerning which thou hadst promised to their fathers that they should go in to possess it. So the children went in and possessed the land, and thou subduest before them the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites, and gavest them into their hands with the kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards and olive yards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets, which testified against them to turn them to thee. And they wrought great provocations. Therefore thou deliverest them into the hand of thy enemies who vexed them And in the time of their trouble, when they cried unto thee, of their trouble, when they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. And according to the manifold mercies, thou gavest them salvation, saviors who saved them out of the land of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Before, uh, therefore, leftest thou them in the land or the hand of their enemies so that they had the dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies, and testifiedest that against them, that thou mightest bring them again unto, the, unto thy law. Yet they dealt proudly, and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the sh- uh, shoulder, and hearkened their neck, and would not hear. Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testifiedest against them by the Spirit in thy prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truly the foundation of all that we know of you and all that you call us to, to do for you, to live in you in an awareness of your goodness and your grace. And so, Father, as we read this passage this morning, countless times, Lord, we are reminded of your goodness, of your grace, of your mercy. And I pray, Lord, as we get into this text and start to unpack the realities that we find therein, Lord, that you would speak right now to anyone by the working of your spirit through the moving of their heart and their mind into the word of God. That if there's anyone here that, that does not know you as their Lord and personal Savior, Lord, that they would choose to trust you today. That they would stop believing the lie that they can't be forgiven because they've just gone too far. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. There is no decision that when repentance is brought into the equation cannot be forgiven and pardoned and restoration be granted and someone be redeemed. The enemy wants us to believe that we're just too bad. We just can't be forgiven. We've sinned too much. But I pray that we would know that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. That you are anxious to forgive us, desiring to forgive us, not condoning sin. There needs to be a consequence for our sin, but you have given every opportunity for someone to come to know you as Savior by sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried in a borrowed tomb and rise again on the third day. And anyone, it doesn't matter their present sin situation, it doesn't matter what they've done, it doesn't matter who they are, man or woman, a child of understanding, Lord, who can grasp the reality of truth, rich or poor, any nation of any people group anywhere in the world can come to know you as Savior by just trusting in you, repenting of their sins, believing that you died on the cross for their sins, and receiving you as Savior, receiving also eternal life. And so, Father, I pray that you would work as only you can as we desire to understand your word uh, truer and fuller today, that you would be glorified. Father, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the word of God. Amen. What an amazing thing it is to read his word together. But I want to share some truths from this. This is believed to be 
uh, a prayer of Ezra. However, it is truly the cry of the people before God, a humble cry. We read of a recounting of Israel's history from Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, truly really up until the present time. You read of Moses in Egypt and all that God did there. You read of really the judges and the time of the judges where seven different times the people were granted deliverance and turned their backs and granted deliverance and turned their backs and continued on all the way through to their present situation where they've been just delivered from captivity. One author said this, history is his story. And this chapter bears that out. Another historian wrote this, and I believe this is true for us today, that men, the quote is, that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important lessery that history has to teach. That men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important lesson that history has to teach. We have been given this chapter to reveal to us the history of God's people, and we need to learn from it this morning. This chapter reveals that the history of Israel is one of failed lessons learned, repeated sin and rebellion, as well as the glorious grace of God. It is also interesting to note that three of Israel's great national prayers occur in Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, and Daniel chapter 9. So I want to dive in and see more about this chapter. What, do we really reveal, or what is really revealed here about our God for us to understand as we desire to serve and worship him? So three, I truly believe, powerful truths that I think we can see in this chapter. And when realized will push us to worship, not just lead us to worship, but I believe we are, by the Spirit, pushed to worship. We have no other recourse. The first thing we need to see is the greatness of God. The greatness of God. Chapter 9, verse 6. We're just going to read verse 6 again. Look at it with me again. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou has made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worships thee. Our God is great. The greatness of God is the first thing we have to pause and recognize here. The people had been reminded by the word of God to the greatness of God. We see this earlier in chapter 8. Even in chapter 9, they've been going through the word of God, the law of God. Remember, they're going back to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books. They're rereading all of the history, all that God has done. And it's drawing them to go, you are a great God. You are mighty creator. I mean, how do we read the first two chapters of Genesis and not just fall on our face and say, you are amazing. Speaking things into existence. There was no light, then there was light. There was nothing, and then the earth gave life to form. Trees began to be created, animals. And then he began to form man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I mean, this God is great. This is one of the greatest blessings to the New Testament church is we have the complete recorded word of God. From cover to cover, it's one message, your God is great. Even in the New Testament, we read story after story of the greatness of God. And we can go back and we can reread all of these stories. And let me just pause here and say, please don't treat these as just Bible stories. What I like to call the flannel graph stories. You remember the flannel graph? Some of y'all remember flannel graph. Some of you had nightmares of flannel graph. Like little flannel graph people were chasing you down. You were screaming. It was crazy. All of us remember those stories that you hear in Sunday school or junior church, and they're good stories. They're true stories. But I think, again, one of the downsides to being raised in church is they're just Bible stories. To some, they're no different than just fairy tales. It's just another story with a good moral that has a good message, and it helps you to live in a good way. These are not just Bible stories in the sense of just these stories we read about. These are real-life people with real-life events and a real-life God who is great and powerful and mighty. We have the complete Word of God. And when we allow ourselves the time 
to engage it. I'm not talking about just rushing through a Bible reading just to get your five verses in for the day and then move on. I'm talking about engaging the Word of God. You might read one verse and spend the whole day just dwelling on that one verse. You might read a whole chapter and just dwell on that whole chapter of the goodness of God, the greatness of God. When we engage the Word of God by the grace through the Spirit, the only outcome is that we are in awe of Him because it reveals how great a God He is. This awareness of his greatness also made them hungry for more. We read in Nehemiah 9, it made the people hungry for more of this God. He's so great, and we worship him as a great God. We just want more of him. We're just hungry for more of him. This is believed, depending on who you read and where you study it, it's believed to have been about a six-hour worship service. About a six-hour worship service is going on during this whole time of prayer and worship and everything else about roughly three hours of preaching and teaching and about three hours of worship and singing praise to God. Now, I don't know what that does for you when you think about that, being worshiping God for six hours straight, three hours of preaching and teaching. One author said this about this time. In some churches, this type of service would result in the request for some resignations. While humorous, and I think that's what he was going for, I think there's a fair amount of truth to that statement. I think if a, if a church went for six hours, I think somebody would be like, we need to talk to the board. This guy's, got, come on. I mean, I got stuff to do. We say we worship a great and mighty God. We sing songs about how great and mighty he is. But are we willing to give our time to him? If he's so great, are you willing to give him a great amount of time? I'm not saying we got to have church for six hours. Some of you are starting to get a little nervous. You're like, I got a crock pot going. I don't, I mean, I love Jesus, but could we have planned this a little bit? I'm not saying you have to do this set amount of time. What I'm saying is we hear stories about missionaries going to overseas areas and they get with this group of Christians and they're in this hut and people just traveled literally hours, if not days to come and be together as the church to hear teaching from this missionary that's come to teach us. And they'll sit there and I've had missionaries tell me that they'll go for two hours and they think, okay, I'm pretty well done. And they get up, get ready to leave. And the leader of the group goes, where are you going? And he's like, well, what do you mean? We've been going for two hours. And he said, these people traveled two days. They're not leaving until tonight. So let's go get back in there. We have stories about that or worship services where these underground churches are meeting for hours and hours and hours, just praying and weeping and just coming together for the greatness of God because they believe he really is that great. And we hear those stories and we're moved in our spirit to go, man, that would be an amazing thing. I can't wait one day. Maybe I can go overseas and I can experience something like that. And we forget the same great God that they're worshiping over there is the same great God that we serve and have today as our Heavenly Father. And there is nothing saying that we can't experience that here. And I'm not talking about some of the hyper-emotionalism we see as we talked about before and some of the stuff you see on TV and some of that silliness that we see. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about genuine, honest, spirit-led. God is great. We're going to worship him until we feel as though he leads us to, to move on and leave the service. I believe we can worship God from the depths of our soul. And it doesn't have to be even in this building. In your own daily devotional lives, have you ever been reading a chapter and you know you got things to do and you got to get going, but you just don't want to leave? You ever experienced that? You're just praying and you know you've got stuff to do in the back of your mind, but you just don't want to stop because you just want more of him and more of him and more of him. If you're sitting here today as a follower of Christ and you say, man, brother, I don't know if I've ever experienced that, then it's not they're good Christians and you're a bad Christian. That's not the problem. The problem is that do you really see him as great? Do you really believe this word and display the God, displays the God who he really says he is? And so again, we can worship him right here. We think, man, I wish I was like them. I wish I could worship like that. And we miss the whole point. They are not better Christians than you or I. They merely believe our God is truly great and worth our time. So we see the greatness of God in this chapter. If you're taking notes, secondly, we see the goodness of God. 
in verses 7 really through verse 30. Verses 7 through verse 30, we see the goodness of God. We're not going to read the whole text again. We've already read it. But I want to pick out a few things here, some key verses that I hope, or I hope would help us to see this truth. In this chapter, verses 17 through 32, the word mercy is used in some way six times. In just verses 17 through 32, the word mercy is used in some way six times. Twice it is used as the phrase manifold mercies, which some translations translate as great compassion. If you see in your translation, great compassion, that's manifold mercies. His grace or graciousness is mentioned twice in the same verses, as well as his kindness. The word kindness here carries the idea of great kindness, great kindness, abounding with loving kindness, abounding, overreaching, overflowing. Think of if you pour liquid into a cup and as you begin to pour that liquid in the cup, it begins to overflow and it just hits the counter. It just goes everywhere. And if you have children, you know exactly what this looks like. I, many times when my kids were younger, I'd come in the kitchen, what happened? And they're looking at me like, um, I don't know. This is weird. Where'd all this Kool-Aid come from? That's crazy. All right, I'm going to go outside now. We'll see you later. Because you understand that image of that overflowing, overabounding. And when you think God's kindness has been reached, you haven't even scratched the surface. It's overflowing, overabounding. It's never ending. His loving kindness. A key verse that I want to draw from those verses 17 through 30 is found actually in verse 17. Let's look at it again. Chapter 9, verse 17. And refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them. Now, that doesn't mean they literally forgot. This means they were choosing to not remember. They were choosing to think something different. They knew exactly what God had done, but they refused to obey. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says that mankind knows there's a God, which is kind of a different thought than what we hear today. There's basically Vodi Bakum, Dr. Vodi Bakum says it well, God does not believe in atheist. There's no such thing as an atheist. Every human being knows there's a God. But what does Romans 1 say? They, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They choose to not acknowledge him as God. We've been studying Exodus on Wednesday nights, going verse by verse through the book of Exodus. And we are in that part of the passage where, or that book where the, the plagues are coming and Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. And we talked about the fact that in the beginning it says that he said, I don't know your God. I don't recognize your God. And in some sense, he was right. He didn't worship their God. He didn't know him personally. But God began to show him, no, you do know me. And you're going to know me. Because my name will go forth. My glory will go forth. And ultimately, Pharaoh knew God. He chose to reject him as God and tried to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's just what the Israelites were doing. They knew God, but they chose to reject it and say, no, we don't, we don't remember that. We don't remember that. Verse 17. How does God respond when, when we do this to God, when we choose to forget? It says, They hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return their bondage. Uh, return their bondage. So go back to where they were. Go back to the bondage. You know, in Egypt, it wasn't that bad. It was pretty good. We had good food. We were slaves, and we worked in the sun all day, and we were beaten. But, you know, it really wasn't that bad of a deal. They're starting to forget the goodness of God. And they want to go back to that bondage. Goes on to say this, but thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and forsook them not. How does God respond when his own people are choosing to forget his goodness and his greatness? He responds with goodness. He responds with the opportunity of repentance. A key verse in verse 15 is where we read the phrase, a God ready to pardon in the King James. Other translations may say a God ready to forgive. 
Literally, what it means is a God of pardons. Not just a God who pardons, a God of pardons. A God whose character and nature is to pardon and to forgive and to redeem and to restore. We struggle to understand that idea. A God who is ready to pardon. Why? Because we forgive with conditions. We're fine forgiven as long as you match my conditions. As long as you match my expectations. And by the way, don't blow it again. I already forgave you once. You ever see posts like this on social media? You know, things like people that were wrong will put posts out there about how they can't forgive. And I, I know now who, why I shouldn't have forgave them and all this stuff. And people have been hurt. Let's not gloss over that. There's a re- realness to that. People have been hurt. But nowhere in Scripture does it say if they hurt you again, you don't forgive. We struggle with this. We forgive, but with conditions. And we have a limit to the amount of times we forgive. This was the whole point of Peter's questions in Matthew chapter 18. If you're taking notes, jot it down. Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Peter comes to Jesus, a famous moment. He asked Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive my brother who offends against me? And I've unpacked this before in previous sermons, but there's a couple assumptions Peter makes here. One, he's the one always forgiven, and they're the ones always offending. Do you catch that? Hey, Lord, when all these sinners out here keep offending me, and they keep coming against me, how many times do I have to forgive them? And I've always loved the irony that he's speaking to the one who's going to die for the sins of the world who did nothing wrong. But Lord, do I really got to forgive my neighbor again for taking my ladder and not bringing it back? I mean, it's been seven times. Peter pulls a number out. He says, should I forgive them seven times, Lord? And we've talked about this before in, in Jewish tradition. There was a number that was set for the number of times you needed to forgive someone. I believe it was three And so Peter says seven because he's Peter and he's trying to be big and bad, right? I'm not going to do that measly three. I know that's not right, but I'll do seven because that's how spiritual I am, Jesus. And we all know the story. What was Jesus' response? Not seven times, but 70 times that. Now, Jesus wasn't being literal here. He doesn't mean once you get the 490, you're like, you're done, right? Like, I've been writing them down right here. So husbands and wives, if you have a journal where you're writing down, stop. Okay, burn it, get rid of it, okay? Because some of you are like, he's at, you know, 482, so we're getting close. I think we'll pass it by the end of the year, okay? He wasn't being literal. What was he saying? It's, a, it's, it's an extreme number to give an extreme act of forgiveness. Keep forgiving. Now, I understand forgiveness doesn't mean trusting, meaning you can forgive someone but choose to not have a close relationship with them because it's not healthy for you or your Christian walk. Well, I forgive you, but for my testimony and for my walk with Christ, I need to have some space here. That's completely fine. There's nothing saying because I forgive you, I got to let this person back in my life as an influence and allow them to continue to lead me in a way that is unhealthy for me or unhealthy to me. But forgiveness means, no, you know what? I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. I'm not going to get even. I'm not going to hope that something bad happens to you because then I'll feel better because something bad happens to you. By the way, that doesn't work either. You never feel better. Because as long as you have unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, you'll never feel like God has for you to feel. You'll never have freedom from that. We have tons of conditions when we forgive. God is a God of pardons. Now, does God have any conditions in his act of forgiveness? He has one very key condition. God loves you. He gave his son for you. But to receive the forgiveness that God is offering, there is one clear condition. Belief. You don't got to work for it. You don't got to earn it. You don't got to be perfect. You don't got to always do right. Just believe. Believe. Trust in Christ and you'll be forgiven. And when you are forgiven, that forgiveness does not stop. You are forgiven and granted eternal life. Once we have committed ourselves to Christ, once we have done that, you can count on him to continue to forgive you when you fall, when you fail. It's not that you're better than anyone else. You've just receive forgiveness from him and anyone can be forgiven if they'll choose to believe. Some would say, well, isn't it, how is that loving of God? Shouldn't God just forgive everyone? God's not going to force himself upon anyone. And if somebody hardens their heart and says, I don't want God, God is loving enough to say, I won't force myself upon you. That's your choice. And I gave you the ability to have that choice. So God is good. 
not as we define good, but as he defines good. Because as was demonstrated to the Israelites over and over again, when they deserved wrath, they received mercy, grace, and kindness. So finally, the greatness of God, the goodness of God, which leads us to the grace of God. Look at verse 31 again. Nehemiah 9, verse 31. Read this verse, give a few more comments, and then we'll be wrapping it up. Nehemiah 9 and verse 31. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Ezra's, Ezra's words here are interesting as to the motivation behind God's gracious pardon of the Israelites. Notice they did suffer consequences for their sin. God does not just go, it's no big deal. There are consequences for our sin to varying degrees depending on what's going on. And we've all experienced that in some way, shape, or form. But here, notice that the Israelites deserved to be consumed. God should have been like, I'm done with you people. All that I've done, and you continue to reject and rebel. But rather than consume them, he shows them mercy. Yes, even in the midst of the consequence of their sin, there's mercy. So what was the motivation for this great mercy, this great kindness, this great grace? He says that it's for thy, or thy great mercy's sake. The motivation was for thy great mercy's sake. In this chapter, we also read about the name of God being glorified through what God was doing with the Israelites. I believe God was gracious to them because it glorified him. And as Paul says later in the book of Ephesians, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. You see, God was gracious and merciful to them Because in doing so, glorified himself, his name, his grace. Why does God save us? Why does God forgive us of our great sin? Not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, but ultimately, yes, we're blessed from it. We have a relationship with him, but ultimately it's because it glorifies him and his grace. And we are left as the children of Israel are left to say, it wasn't me. I didn't deserve this. I actually deserve the exact opposite of this. But the people understood, and I believe we can as well, the grace of God, not in a conceptual sense, just an idea of grace, but a practical one. They understood their wickedness and therefore praised God's graciousness. They understood firsthand, I have fallen, I have sinned, I have rebelled. But I also understand God's grace and God's mercy. Nehemiah chapter 9 ends with an amazing moment where the children of Israel made a decision to recognize not only their sinfulness, their unworthiness, but God's goodness. They equally said, you have done right to judge, and yet you are gracious and merciful. You have done right to judge us, God. We, we deserve the consequence of our sin. But even in that, you are righteous and merciful and good. And this is our cry today as his church. God, we have sinned and the consequences we receive are just. Yet we praise you because you have shown us your grace through Christ in saving us. You are a great and good God. Surely this God deserves our loving obedience. So as application this morning, maybe it's time for a new beginning in your life. Maybe it's a time for you to say, Lord, I've drifted. I've walked away. I've chosen to forgot your goodness. But this morning it all ends and I start anew and I'm back on track. I want to focus in on you. I want to be in awe of you. I want to have my mind and my life reflect your goodness, your greatness, and your grace. This is what the people of God committed to in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. It says, And because of all of this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. What does that mean? They heard the word of God, were convicted, repented, praised God for his greatness, his goodness, and his grace, realized they were just in receiving consequences for their sin, but yet God was gracious, and they said, we're going to start anew today. They said, we're going to write this down. We're going to start ensure covenants because we're going to walk in the grace of God, the goodness of God, and the greatness of God. So how is God calling you to start anew today? How is God calling you to maybe 
look at your devotional life, your personal spiritual life, and reflect and say, God, am I truly reflecting and believing that you are these things? Whatever God is doing, maybe you would come this morning as we have a time of invitation and just bend the knee and say, God, I'm just going to worship you. Maybe you want to come and just say, God, I'm going to praise you for being the God that you are. I want to be in awe of you this morning. I just want to worship you, God. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ. And you've believed a lie. You're, you're too far gone. It is not true. His grace is for you. His, the sin that you've committed is real and it carries a consequence and that consequence was Jesus Christ being nailed to a cross. But if you will cry out and ask him to save you just as you are, he will save you and redeem you and begin to show you his greatness, his grace and his goodness. And so whatever God is doing, maybe you would respond this morning as we pray. Would you bow your heads right there where you are? Father, we come before you today, Lord, just so thankful for this morning. Lord, I pray that as only you can, by the working of your spirit through the word, that you would draw us into a moment of praise and worship. That you would draw us into a moment of just being in awe of you. Lord, I know the message was simple this morning. But Father, I'm so thankful for the simplicity of the gospel. We read the history of the people of Israel and we're so... Lord, sometimes we kind of scratch our heads. We're so confused how they can continue to walk away. How could they continue to experience the grace of God firsthand and reject it, walk away, live in their own understanding, look to broken cisterns, look to lesser things. But Father, I believe that we really can understand it because we see it in our own personal history, our own lives of times where we've experienced and seen by the word of God and in salvation, the greatness of God. And yet we get so distracted. And so, Father, as we said last week, thank you for your patience. And I pray that we, as your people, as your church, that we'd worship you in spirit and in truth and be drawn to the reality of who you are. And, Lord, I believe you desire us to just spend time with you, just be before you and lift you up. And so, Father, whatever you're doing this morning by the working of your spirit, I pray that you would be glorified, that your name would go forth, your grace would be on display, and that we as a church would continually cry out to you and say, Lord, we are, you are just in the things that we receive for the acts of sin that we commit, but you are so gracious to forgive us, to redeem us, and to use us for your glory. We aren't a perfect people, but we serve a perfect and risen Savior. So thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. And thank you for being the God that you are, not the God that we try to make you. Again, glorify your name above all else. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet as we're led in a song of invitation this morning? Whether there in your seats or here at the altar, would you respond? Would you come and thank him or praise him or just spend some time with him this morning as we sing and worship him this morning for who he is?